Father, do hold us fast in the palm of your hand that none may snatch us away, O Lord. For your grip is solid and eternal. Let it be so in all our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name this morning. You may be seated. We have been on a journey through the book of Romans by popular demand. I always said that I don't take requests, but I answered this one, and we are in chapter 6 of the book of Romans, several weeks now, well, several months now, I think. You can count them up. But we finally arrived at the end of chapter 6, very famously at the verse of uh, Romans 6.23, and that will be where we give our attention this morning. And so I'll read a few of the previous verses as well to place it in its proper context. And so Paul writes, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. O Father, may your Holy Spirit be palpably among us this morning. May we know his presence in the power and the proclamation of this, your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Very famous verse of scripture, a memory verse. I would imagine that most of you old evangelicals like myself have committed this verse to memory. If not, shame on you and start today. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Now this is one of those great statements of Christianity. One of the great succinct declaration of the gospel. It's a statement that should stop us in our tracks. It should cause the person of faith to wonder, to ponder, to meditate upon it. What does this verse mean to us? We ought to be asking prayerfully before the Lord. It it causes the reader to sit in amazement of its profound meaning. And as you might imagine, it's a statement that has caused no end of theological arguments throughout the history of our faith. People do love to argue about straightforward scripture, but what are you going to do? It's a statement that is this apostle's culmination of a long and laborious treatment of God's plan for us and for our salvation. It declares an awesome reality, and it does it with poetic beauty. That's what I love about some of the early translations. They retained some of the poetic beauty of the verse itself. It contains a, what we should call a spiritual simplicity. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. What could be more simple than that? We could all fold the, our Bibles up now and be done for the day because the, the verse speaks for itself and anyone who preaches that verse has preached the gospel. But please stay for the rest of the sermon. It's a statement that I will use to summarize our whole position as the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ. i got to tell you a little anecdote. I have a personal relationship with this verse that goes way back to one of the first times I ever preached a sermon. And it was back in the early 90s. And I was a young Christian, and I was in a local church here. And one of the other local churches, church pastors, was looking for someone to stand in for him. And he came to our church and he asked our pastor if he had someone. And I was very blessed that he, that he uh, asked me if I would do it. And that was the first time I preached. It was right up the road here in Taunton at the uh, Christ Community Church. And so I went there and I preached. And the pastor and I developed a relationship. We became friends. And whenever he went on vacation, he just asked me to come and I'd preach. And I preached there a number of times. But one of the early times when I preached there, I'd gotten to know some of the people. And it was a small church then. I understand it's very large now. But uh, one of the men came up to me and he was showing me his new study Bible. And you know, some of the celebrity preachers, if you will, some of the well-known preachers put out their own 
version with their own comments in there. Some of you may have the MacArthur Study Bible or the Sproul. I think Sproul has his own with his own comments in there. Very smart guys. It's great to go in and, and see their commentary on the verses. But this particular Bible was the commentary of Dr. Robert Schuler. Does anyone remember Dr. Robert Schuler? Signify by shaking your head. <laughs> so Robert Schuler was admittedly a disciple of the very famous Norman Vincent Peale, who was, by the way, was not a Christian, but he, is, he wrote that great book back in, I think, the 50s. I remember my father had the book. It's on my shelf still. It's called The Power of Positive Thinking. Now, I'm all for positive thinking, but friends, positive thinking is not the same as faith. I just want you to know that. It doesn't create anything, but it does sort of propel. I, I would say, if you were to ask me, Pastor, should I be a positivist or a negativist, I'd probably say I'd rather you think positively than negatively. Although, I'll tell you right up front, I'm a pessimist across the board. I always expect the worst. But um, I'm kind of kidding when I say that, but I don't have a lot of uh, trust in institutions and uh, the competency of our fellow citizens in this age. Um, but anyways, he showed me the Bible. He was all happy to have his new Bible, his commentary. Now, this particular Bible, because it's all about positive thinking, right? And that was Schuler's message. He was, on, he was on television in 71 countries, he used to boast. And his version of positive thinking was called possibility thinking. And he loved to get up there and talk about it. He had the big crystal cathedral that he built for, I think, a billion dollars, which was, which was a trillion in those days. And... Um, it's now gone, it's defunct, it's sold to the Catholic Church, and they remodeled it. But um, Schuler uh, had his commentaries, and, and you would look at the page, you would look at the written page, and it would look like this with the black ink, but every here and there, there was a, there was a, um, a highlight, of, a blue highlight, on what Schuler regarded as the positive verses or phrases in your Bible. Now, I would think, I believe that every word of God is God-breathed and profitable for instruction. I would have thought the fact that it was truth made the whole thing really very positive, right? So the man showed me his Bible, and it happened to be opened up to Romans chapter 6. And so I looked at Romans chapter 6, and I see in black print, the wages of sin is death, and then I see in bright, blue, happy, positive print that the gift of God is eternal life. In other words, don't worry about the sin part of the verse. That's for those sinners out there. But the gift of God is eternal life. Friends, when you, when you edit the Word of God like that, you miss the entire point. Because if I were just to get here this morning and say the gift of God's eternal life, or if I went out into the subway with my sign and my long hair like I usually do, and I said the gift of God, and I say the gift of God is eternal life, friends, I would be... I would be lying. I would be guilty of a half-truth. Because the gift of God is not for everyone. The wages of sin are for some, and the gift of God is for others. Death is for some. Life is for others. Hell is for some, and heaven is for others. I will never forget the look on the man's face when I gave him that sermon that I just gave you. <laughs> <laughs> the poor man. I mean, I, I said, I would take this and throw it in the trash back there and let me get you a, a Bible with real biblical commentary in it. How about we do that? Friends, Paul compares and contrasts two subjects in this one verse. He's comparing wages with gifts. He's comparing death with life. He's comparing sin with obedience to God. All of these things. And this is Paul's summary of the whole chapter. For if you think of it holistically, there's really no other kind of life than eternal life. We think about it. Otherwise, we just sort of pop into reality, pop in and pop out for a little moment in time. When you think of how long time is, forget about how long eternity is, it's inconceivable, right? The best illustration I've ever seen comparing time to eternity was from C.S. Lewis. He took a piece of white paper and he drew a little line in the middle about a half inch long with his pen. And he said, this paper is eternity and that line is time. So to pop in and out like that, it's really no life at all. For a life that has an end is not a life. It's really a mere momentary intrusion into reality, right? 
And so the apostle speaks of life, but he speaks of eternal life. It's an absurdity to imagine, though, that life could be earned. Right? It's a gift. It's the gift of God. You don't earn a gift. You just say thank you when you get it. For how could non-existent Adam have earned the right to his own creation? Did the dirt cry out to God, give me life? Did the dirt do some good, compassionate, charitable things to earn eternal life and God's respect and his notice? No, the dirt was just there. It's dead dirt. The material of Adam's existence was but the dust of the dry earth. I've, I've, you've heard me say many times, could dead Lazarus have cried out for his own resurrection? He was dead. He was in the tomb. He needed someone else to come and bring him to life. The dead don't cry out for life. The dirt doesn't cry out for creation. In every instance, life is only, always a gift of God. And the apostle summarizes it in this powerful statement. If we'll just take it in for what it says. The whole of it, though. Did God in his own loving genius mold the clay of his own initiative? Was it not God the creator who breathed not just life into the man, but his own life? There's no other kind of life than that which is bestowed upon the recipient by the magnanimous initiative of its creator. Life doesn't just come. You don't just invest. You don't just try really hard to be born. You're just given the gift of life. So life of any kind, friends, is always a gift. And it's always enjoined by the fact that it could never be earned. You couldn't earn life. It's rather mercifully and graciously bestowed upon an unsuspecting, as yet non-existent, person. For how could the unborn possibly earn their way into existence? They're given to us by God. That's why the unborn in, in the churches today are of special significance. So that's life. Life's the gift of God. I think I've demonstrated that well. I think we should all go home recognizing that life is a gift that cannot be earned. Now, a wage, on the other hand, is the polar opposite of the gift. A wage is something you have earned. It's not a gift. In the moment you've been cheated out of what you're earned, you're painfully introduced to that concept. Once worked for, the wage is rightfully yours. You have earned it. In business, we have in our books what's called a receivable. You know what that is? A receivable? A receivable. Those are agreed-upon charges that have yet to be collected. They're owed because you did the work, but you didn't get, and you, you issued the bill, but you didn't get paid yet. So the receivables, you can count as part of your assets. They're coming in because your client's a good and just client, and he's going to pay, you know, when he gets around to it. <laughs> and your books are, gonna be, are going to be balanced. And so the work is done, and we're awaiting payment. Receivables may be added into our portfolio because they are due. You get paid what you're due. And so your wages are not due due to the gracious nature of your client. That's not what you're... If you have a, a, you know, a nasty client that you're working for, and he doesn't want to pay you. That has nothing to do with it. That wasn't the agreement. Or if you're mad because he paid you and didn't say thank you. I hear people say, my boss never says thank you. Did he pay you? That's the agreement. Maybe he was grumpy that day and didn't say thank you. Forget about it. You got your pay. Go home happy. Buy something for the kids. No, you're, you're due what you've earned. And you know it. Be satisfied with it. You built, you built his house, maybe. Or you painted his barn. Or you harvested his crops. Or maybe you babysat his kids. And now you know you're entitled to payment. Right? The barn's nice and red. Paint's all cleaned up. And you put out your red hand and you wait for the, for the dollar bills to go into it. Right? You've earned your wage, as it were. And you may legally, and I've seen it sometimes violently extracted from the client who owes it. If he withholds the wage, it's because he's an unjust client. Right? He's withholding the wage. A few proverbs about that, by the way. I'm sure Bill will get to it. It may not be said, though, that God is an unjust client. God always pays what he owes. That's what just means. Right? It may not be said that God is an unjust God. What you've earned from him 
he will pay, for he is a just partner in the transaction. You're following? This verse of Paul's is a summary of the whole of the gospel message. I can think of no better conclusion to the doctrinal treatise of the first six chapters of this great epistle. But if I was to offer my own summary of those chapters, it would sound something like this. If you find yourself in hell, it's because you earned it. And if you find yourself in heaven, it's because you didn't. You can't earn life. It is the gift of God. What a beautiful, succinct representation of everything that we believe. This is the gospel of Christ. If you find yourself in hell, you'll know you deserved it. If you find yourself in heaven, you'll just be amazed looking around. Are you sure I belong here? You didn't deserve it. I might say it another way. If you end up in hell, you'll endure eternity knowing that you deserve it. Which is even worse than just knowing for the moment, right? If you end up in heaven, you'll spend eternity marveling over the reality that you're there and did nothing to deserve it. You will revel in the glorious truth that the whole blessing of it was earned by someone else. It was the gift of God. But because you had a wage to pay... Someone else had to earn life for you. He earned it, gave you the gift. The difference between wage and gift are so beautifully juxtaposed in this one verse. And the life you live, whether it is your native birth or your second birth, you've heard of your second birth, if you've ever sang Hark the Herald Angels Sing by Charles Wesley, when he says, born to raise the sons of earth... Born to give them second birth. I always loved that verse, right? When you sing it, you know that second birth is the gift of God, just like the first birth was. You you can't earn either of them. You can't... You did nothing to be born, and you did nothing to be born again. It's all a gift of God. Life is not only not earned, it's unearnable. So there's a second birth, friends. And if you read your Bible carefully, you'll find out there's also a second death. Revelation 21.8. The Bible speaks of both. And if you've received the second birth, the second death cannot touch you. That's the awesome part of of the Scripture, right? You're immune to its power, friends. You're not susceptible to its infection, Your faith is your vaccination against it, and you need no booster shots to remain impregnable to its siege. Just once. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. (laughs) No more boosters. You're vaccinated against sin and death. It can't touch you anymore. If you ended up in heaven with God knowing nothing of faith, suppose you went to God, you know, stupid. You knew nothing of faith. You knew nothing of justification, nothing about election. You would wonder how you came to be so insurmountably and exceedingly blessed. But God would not have, uh, God would not have his elect into his heavenly presence ignorant of how they got there. He wants us to know why. And friends, that's why you're here this morning. That's why you come continually before the the preacher of the Word of God, so that we continually keep in our minds the details of our salvation. And, you know, God could have saved us and just brought us home, but He left us here, and there's a purpose in His leaving us here. And part of that purpose is to praise Him and be a witness to the world. This, I know we all evangelize, and Steve goes out and talks to all these people, and everybody else does these things, and we compel them to come in. The best witness you have that you love God is to worship him on Sunday morning that his house may be full because he's worthy of that praise. He's worthy of your presence. That's the best thing you can do. There's not a lot that we can really give to God, but we can give him what's due and, and praise is due. So we come together. And he wants us to praise, as the Old Testament says, in the great assembly or in the small assembly as part of the great assembly, Right? So he doesn't want us to just be in heaven and not know. He wants to teach us the mechanics of salvation, if you will. And so this apostle in the Holy Spirit did not want 
ignorant servants, they wanted knowledgeable ones. Paul said it so many times. He said to the Thessalonians, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. And he was talking about the resurrection. I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to know how, that, how that's going to play out. So that way nobody could fool you, right? Uh, he said, sim- uh, the Apostle Peter said it similarly. Similarly, he said, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. Friends, you can't grow in godliness without the knowledge of God. He doesn't want us ignorant. He wants us knowledgeable. That's why we have so many ministries of the church. We have the Tuesday morning uh, Bible study with the ladies, Mrs. Davitza. We pray for her always to have an um, inspired meeting with the ladies. It's very profitable, I understand. Certainly, uh, some of us are on hiatus. Your pastor is on a, a little bit of a sabbatical for the Thursday night session. We will get back to it. We always do. We've done it for 27 years. But um, we have all these ministries because we're hungry for the knowledge of how to walk in this world and how to think about spiritual matters. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul wrote of the purpose of the church to the Ephesians, and he was telling them that the apostles and evangelists and pastors and teachers in chapter 4 of Ephesians were given to the church as a benefit. Why did God create the church? We prayed for people today who claim to be saved but have no link to the church. I tell you, I would be fearful to me to go before Jesus at the last judgment and say to him, I love you, Lord, it's your people I didn't like that much. You know, the ones that you loved, the ones that you gave your life for bloodily on the cross. I wouldn't want to say that. God loves the church, and so must we. And so Paul teaches them, how are you going to be unignorant or educated on these things? He gave us gifts. He says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. We come to the knowledge of the Son of God. And he takes it further, saying that knowledge of God causes spiritual growth. You can't grow up in Christ without knowledge. It matures us. It causes us to grow from infancy to adulthood, in our faith, in the spiritual sense. That we should no longer be children, Paul wrote, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Friends, the apostle does not want us to be fooled by falsehood. He wants us to have our minds bathed in the truth of God's word, whether it's positive or negative. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones always said, God's word never hurts God's people. Don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. It's a gift. To know both sides of the coin. Sin and death and Satan are fearful things, but not to the Christian. We've been injected. So speaking the truth in love, grow up in all things. And so Paul, desiring that we become mature in our faith, teaches us the details of God's plan. This verse is a summary of all those details we labored over for the last few weeks. And I know you labored with me. And I praise God for it. So there was a divine problem in the universe. Now I say that in quotes. If you look in your notes, you'll see problem. God doesn't have problems. You know what I mean? You can't have a problem if you can do anything. How could something be a problem, right? Um, if you can foresee it coming, in fact, ordain it coming, how can it be a problem? But for the sake of our understanding, there was a certain problem in the universe. God saw that man was, quote, only evil continually. That's what he said before the flood of Noah in Genesis 6-5. He said, God saw that man was only evil continually. And he brought about the flood and he had to get rid of all that evil. But if if you're very careful and if you've been around the Thursday night Bible study in the last few sessions, you know that that evil was still in man and came right back into the earth. The only difference is God said, I won't destroy it with a flood anymore. But he does do other things right? But he won't destroy it uh, with a flood anymore. Man was only evil continually. In fact, in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, Paul said, there is none righteous, no, not one. Nothing's changed much since the antiquity and the diluvian uh, 
epic of Christian history in, the, in, the, uh, in Noah's flood all the way up to the first century where Paul's writing these words, nothing changed much. So to express the longing, for God to express the longing of his merciful soul, he knew we only deserved death. But because of his love, he sought to rectify that problem. And it's a little more complicated than we might think. He would find a way to redeem man even though he didn't deserve it. He would find a way. And the challenge, again, God doesn't really have challenges, right? Doesn't matter how high you put the bar, God can vault over it, right? Um, The challenge for the Almighty was how to remain a just God who pays people according to what they've earned, right? While at the same time, withholding the wage earned by sinful humanity. You earned death. That's all you got. That's all you earned. And a just client has to pay you with death. But God's loving heart was so big and great and broken by the sin of man. He sought out another way to give us the gift of life and have it still and have him still be a just God. We like to speak of rights in our country, don't we? Everybody has the rights. You know, we're always marching around with signs telling everybody what our rights are, right? In the kingdom of God, you have one right. You receive what you've earned. <laughs> you have <laughs> the right to die, truly. You've earned death, and you have the duty to uninterruptedly remain dead forever. Once you're dead, that's your duty. Uninterruptedly remain dead. Death is your right. Sinful humanity has earned their right. And though it's our right to collect it, death is a wage that we don't mind being put off for a while. Right? Everyone, the wages of sin is death, but we don't mind if he doesn't pay right now. Right? It's kind of like the guy that went to the doctor and he was terminally ill and the doctor said, I give you six months to live. In six months, he called a guy. The guy said, I can't pay the bill. He said, I'll give you another six months. I mean, you just, you, you, don't, you, you, you don't care if the guy pays right now. You don't want to be paid. You want to live just a little bit longer because it's short enough anyway, right? So you don't mind that God puts it off for a while. According to the divine economy, man must be paid his just wage for the work he has performed. And our client, capital C client, who is a just client, must not withhold what's been earned unless a worthy advocate comes to plead our cause in our behalf. Our case is open and shut. You know, Jesus is called our advocate. There's another word for that. Lawyer. He's our counselor, our representative. So be careful how you talk about lawyers, because capital L lawyers, Jesus Christ. (laughs) So friends, it's very simple. You lived, you sinned, the soul that sinneth, it shall die, God said to Ezekiel. You've earned your pay, come and collect it without complaint, but there's one biblical caveat. There's but one place in Scripture that speaks of rights. There's only one that I know of. If you know another one, and I didn't do an exhaustive search, so you, if your minds are all going, he's wrong, I know there's another place. But will you find it, and I'll uh, print a retraction next week on the back page. Um, there's one place in Scripture that speaks of rights. The Bible is big on responsibility, not so big on rights. But John wrote this. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. God's concerned, that's God's bill of rights. There's one right on it. As many as receive, it's a conditional right, but it's endowed by our creator, right? So keep that in mind as we go through this. As for the gift of God, there's also a path to obtain it. And though the ways of God are mysterious, and he's not compelled by any force in heaven or earth to explain himself, God in his Apostle would not have us remain ignorant of the divine process of redemption. How do I appropriate that right to become a child of God? Because, friend, a child of God cannot die. The eternal Father has eternal children. 
And what's perhaps even more glorious about the declaration of verse 23 is that before we enter into eternal life with Christ, it's God's will that we are certain and that we are assured of how we get there. He wants us to go there knowingly. Why? Because he wants us praising him on the way. He wants us witnessing of his mercy and his love on the way. He wants us proclaiming that the wages of sin is death and the gift of God's eternal life. So he wants us to know these things and understand these concepts. He explained himself. He revealed himself in words, so we have to know what the words mean. And as we noted last week, Paul links salvation with assurance of salvation all through the book of Romans, right? Reckon yourselves dead to sin. That means know that you're dead to sin. God killed the old man. He's dead and gone. Reckon yourself dead to sin. And he wants us to know the process of salvation because he would have us live triumphantly in the here and now. We're here. We're the blessed of all people in the earth. Don't look at your neighbors in his cause. I went to some, I went to a, um, a, old, a, a gathering of old friends on Friday evening. And, uh, and I pulled in my Toyota between all these other higher class cars. <laughs> I was kind of wondering if I belong there. But uh, d- don't worry about all that stuff in the world that you see. That guy has more than I got. Oh, he seems more blessed than me, and he's not a Christian. Friends, you're the blessed of the earth. And remember, as Paul pointed out, all throughout these chapters, we also suffer with Christ. We're crucified with Christ, right? We share in what the Bible calls the fellowship of his suffering. But we're, we're the blessed of the universe, friends. We're the blessed of all eternity, those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he doesn't want us to be ignorant of all these things. So that we could live triumphantly. Be a good witness. He wants fruit from our faith. Remember, fruit to holiness. I read in verse 22. Fruit to holiness. He, Paul links salvation with assurance of salvation. And he links links genuine faith to the fruit of genuine faith. Friends, good works don't get you saved. But people that are saved have good works. They're the only ones that do. There's no path to eternal life that's not littered with the good works of the saint who treads the path. Your life is littered with good works or not. And those good works become the assurance of your salvation. You couldn't have done them without Christ, without the Holy Spirit living in you, without the Word of God urging you on. And so we read this. You know, sometimes I go to quote a passage of scripture to explain what I'm saying, and I, and I just can't stop quoting. I could have gone on and on and on the book of Ephesians on this subject, but he says, Paul writes here, and you, saint, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. In other words, friends, every one of us who is redeemed was redeemed out of the same thing, sin. And deadness. We already were dead spiritually. Just like Adam, when he plucked the apple and ate it, he was already dead and his body lived another 900 years or so. Right? We were all dead in trespasses and sin, but the gift of life was given to us because our debt was paid on the cross by the death of Christ. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. He was our master. He is no longer the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. You were born, your first birth was by nature sinful, a child of wrath. You were born deserving God's wrath. That's the part of the scriptures that Robert Schuller would not have highlighted in blue. That you are all children of wrath. This he would have highlighted in blue. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We didn't make ourselves alive. He made us alive. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God, not of works, that anyone should boast. So we don't boast that we're saved. We praise God that we're saved. We're thankful that we're saved. For we are his workmanship and we're created for something. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Don't say good works don't matter. They do matter. They can't get you saved, but they do matter. And what about those good works? which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Those works are compared by God. You have to do good works if you're saved. They're prepared by God that you should walk in them, and he's God, so you're going to walk in them. So now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And he came and preached... Friends, Jesus came and preached. He did all those things, and then he came and preached. Friends, Christians preach. We teach in preaching, but preaching is earnestly contending for a thing. We do preach. Oh, you're kind of preachy in your church. That's right, we earnestly contend. We're not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it's the power of God unto salvation. Right? He came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building of the church, friends, being fitted together by a great mason grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You're telling me the church doesn't matter? You're being built as a household of God for a dwelling place for God. He's not dwelling in the shed. He's dwelling in the church and the people of the church. So the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is everlasting life. We know from Scripture that the laborer is worthy of his wage. We also know that God's a just God who will not withhold the laborer from what is due. Thankfully, however, we also have a God who's not only just, but who is merciful and who is full of overwhelming love. So he's not just just, he's also merciful. And only God can sort of make those things work, it seems. David sang about it. He said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, David sang. Jesus professed it, I think, much more powerfully to Nicodemus when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, the glory of that statement is awesome, and the, and the implications are fearful. They're fearful, friends. Whoever believeth in him shall not perish. In other words, all the others perish. You understand? So surely you did not deserve the gift of God. It's the, it's the only gift worth talking about, though. We talk about other things, but this is the only one worth talking about. For all other such things pale in comparison to the greatness of God's eternal gift. You know, there is a saying that you can't take it with you. Well, you can. This gift goes with you. All, everywhere you go, the gift of life is with you. You can't take it with you. The devil can't take it by having you killed. You take it with you to the grave. You can take it with you. You know, somebody put that on a poster or something. You can take it with you. It's the gift of God. It's truly the gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving. Do you remember what that's from? If you're old enough, you remember way back in the 60s, RCA Victor came out with the first color TV. And they advertised it at the Christmas season, the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, they were right. Um, So let's not lose the impact of the words here, friends. A wage is a thing that's earned through labor. It's a thing that in the divine economy of the universe may not be withheld. It has to come. A gift is a thing that's not earned. 
it's bestowed. Remember I gave you the illustration at Christmas time? You go up to your friend and you give him this wonderful gift and you didn't expect it and you're giving him this wonderful package all wrapped up, the card and the bow and all this. And just before he opens it, you say, oh, one minute, it, it cost me 50 bucks and I'd like you to chip in 25. I mean, that's not a gift anymore. You've ruined it, right? The gift, you just give it. You walk away. You hear him say, thank you. He'd get on his knees and praise God that you gave him the gift. But you don't take credit for it. You gave it out of love. You loved the man, so you gave him the gift. You didn't deserve it. It's just something that's bestowed. The goodness in the exchange, in the gift-giving exchange, the goodness goes to the giver. That's why he says it's, it's better to give than to receive. You're the good one in the exchange. The giver is the good one. The recipient may be a spoiled child. How many gifts have you given to spoiled children in your life? It won't make them good, believe me. You cannot bribe a child to be good. He has to be, well, you know, directed. He could be a cantankerous neighbor. You ever have one of those? He could just be a petulant fool. There's plenty of those around. And I hope you have the humility to find yourself in that list. But the giver is gracious and good, even though the recipient may be all those things. Friends, God chose the foolish things to confound the wise. You can do that too. You can give a gift to a totally undeserving, petulant, fool, cantankerous child or uh, spoiled neighbor. Whatever. Mixed metaphors. But let's continue with the simplicity of this theology. There are only two possibilities facing every individual in the world. Only two. There's death and hell. There's life in heaven with God. That's only two. And it is the shame of the Catholic Church that they confused this to countless generations through countless centuries of beleaguered priests. They confused it. It is the shame of Roman Catholicism that they confused these two roads. And it's the glory of the Reformation that they unveiled it again. Remember that. That's why we are a Reformation church. The Catholic Church has added a third way, even a fourth way. But that's what happens when you exalt human authority over divine authority. That's what happens. It's what happens when you have misunderstood the gospel, that eternal life has been earned for us by Christ, when you misunderstand that. And it's earned by Christ because it could never have been earned by you. Even though you did your penance or said your rosary, you can't earn it. To even do those things suggests that you don't believe the blood of Christ was worth what the Bible said it was worth. Your soul. No pilgrimage to holy sites can earn it. No viewing of divine artifacts. No acting out stations of the cross. No lighting candles. No prayer to dead saints who for the most part aren't saints at all. No imaginary blessing of an imaginary virgin goddess will offer what only Christ can offer. And no salvation came from any other source than the blood of Christ spilled at Calvary. And when you think all those other things, it's because you've diminished the, the authority of God's word under the authority of traditions and centuries of man's traditions. Friends, there's two ways of life. The whole Bible witnesses of, of this. There are a mere two destinations in death. And that's the message of the New Testament throughout all of its books. Friends, every parable and scriptural metaphor refers us to the two ways of life and death. Your house is said to be what? Built on the rock? Built on sand? One will dissolve the other will endure. There's two types of building, right? These are metaphors for the two ways of life. There's allegiance to God and there's allegiance to mammon. No man can serve God and mammon. No man can serve two masters. He serves one or the other, but not both at the same time. There's no gray area here. You're on one road or you're on the other. There are two paths of life. There's a wide path. That's the one that all your friends are on. Be very careful about the wide road, Right? Don't, you never have to worry about jumping on the latest trend. If it's worth anything, it'll be there tomorrow, but for my money, it won't be. That's why it's called a trend. There are two paths, a wide, the broad road that's well-traveled. There's a narrow path that's difficult to walk and sparsely traveled. You know about it. The Scripture's clear that we may travel one path, but not both. 
and the path we travel will take us to the pre-appointed destination. I heard one Southern preacher give an illustration of this one time. He was from Texas, and he said, I knew this friend of mine. He was on the road to Dallas, and he saw the sign that said, Dallas, 200 miles. But he didn't want to go to Dallas. He wanted to go to Houston. But he's on the road, he stayed on the road, and he said, Dallas, 100 miles. But he didn't want to go to Dallas. And he kept going and said, Dallas, 50 miles, Dallas, 20 miles, Dallas, 20 miles. Entering Dallas, he said, what am I doing here? He said, that's the road you were on. You didn't want to go to Dallas, shouldn't have been on that road. Right? It's two roads, friends. And you know which one you're on. There are two masters. We're slave to one or we're slave to the other. There's two masters of the universe. You're slave to one or you're slave to the other. There are no gradations or gray areas areas in these relationships. We are ruled by sin, by the flesh, or we're ruled by Christ and the Spirit. We obey the dictates of God or the suggestions of Satan. Notice I didn't say the, dic- uh, the dictates of Satan. He can't dictate anything. He can only suggest, right? And when he sounds really smart, we do it. Dr. Lloyd-Jones says this, fairly lengthy quotation here. He said, the only question you need to ask about man is who is his master? To whom is he slave? Though he may be apparently a paragon of all virtues, though he may be a man who does a great deal of good, though he may be a a most moral and ethical man, though he may appear at first sight to be very much better than the people who are members of the Christian churches, that does not tell us the real truth about the man. The one question the Bible asks, Lloyd-Jones goes on, about every one of us is whom do you serve? You did a good work. Who'd you do it for? Under whose command are you? You know, the devil doesn't mind if you... If you uh, are a polite person on your way to hell. He doesn't mind if you're charitable or knowledgeable about him on your way to hell. He just assumes you not know who he is. So Lloyd-Jones goes on, for whom are you, are you living? Who is your master? Is it sin or is it God? And so don't become confused. You know your doctrine, friends. Many of you from your youth have known all of these things that I'm teaching. You've known them. Lloyd-Jones also says it's the glory of a preacher to be repetitive. What, how did Peter say it in 1 Peter? He said, I come not so much to instruct you, but to remind you in the things you already know, that you might hear them again and again before I die, before I leave this tent, he said. Not so much to instruct you, but to remind you. I know you know most of these doctrines, most of you do, but sometimes we let them slip away. We actually believe that we can owe allegiance to someone else or something else. You let yourselves be lured into the society of other people whose subtleties of sin and Satan have tricked you. You've lost your first love. You remember that from the book of Revelations? You have lost your first love. Your first love, if you're a believer, is Jesus Christ. It isn't just about belief because if you know God, you love God. There's no separating that. If you don't love God, it's because you haven't known him. He is totally lovable. And the more you know about him, the deeper that love goes. When you lose your first love, it's because you let something else get in the place of it. And the only thing God has really asked us to do eternally is worship him on the Sabbath day. You let your friends lure you away from spiritual duties and responsibilities. For how will your children show devotion to God on his appointed day if you're lured away by the frivolous temptations of men? Paul warned of the nature of such things the source of all temptation to sin. And so we read, for such are false apostles. You remember this? Deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, I brought up Dr. Schuler earlier in the, in the presentation, and I do want to say, I mean, I didn't come here intending to disparage a man's life and ministry, and I'm certainly not making a final judgment, 
But this is a man who confused all these things and lured many people away from these two paths. And it was a, he would have been done better as a motivational speaker than a preacher of the gospel. Tell you how to be successful in business or how to endure trial, which, you know, all these things are um, useful things. But, you know, when he passed away, he had two children. He had a son and a daughter. And the son took his place and he preached the gospel, if I remember him correctly. And he preached the gospel and they didn't want to hear it. And they put him away. And the daughter came in and she preached the gospel of her father. And they did want to hear it. That's what they had gotten used to. They were deceitful workers transforming themselves into angels of God. Angels of Satan, rather. Angels of light, it says. Transformed themselves. It's false teaching out there. And it lures us. And the reason we're continually warned about it is in Scripture is because it's not always easy to detect. It sounds good. It sounds smart. It sounds moral and ethical. But it may or may not be true. And there is a test. There are two roads only. That's the first test. The wages of sin of death and the gift of God's eternal life. I've always found it interesting, particularly in the election season of our political culture that we're in now, that there are so many artificial groupings that we pay attention to. Have you ever noticed this? Voting blocks, things we call them. They're just people. We're divided by what? Nationalities, skin color, political parties, belief systems. We're urban or rural. We live in the city or the country. We're white-collar, blue-collar, laborers, managers, male, female, straight, gay. We're all these things. And we see ourselves as so wise and probing with regard to our understanding of the human race and its subtleties and its complexities. And we watch the news stations with the nine heads all have something really smart to say. And yet in all of the categories into which we place ourselves and our fellow man, the scripture recognizes only two. There are those who know God, and there are those who do not. By the same token, those who know God love God, and those who don't know God do not love God, for how can you love him in whom you have not known? The gospel is the declaration. It is the proclamation that the ends of either of the two roads is inevitable and predetermined. There are no other possibilities. You're either on the road to being paid your wages or you're on the road to receiving your divinely appointed gift. And if you're in hell, you have yourself to blame. And if you find yourself in heaven, you have only Christ to thank. That's the gospel of Christ. And we should... Proclaim with Paul that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. O oh, Father, in Jesus' name, do add your blessing to the teaching, the proclamation, and the absorption of this, your holy word, and may we be nourished in our hearts and minds by the truth of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.